Howdy and welcome to Inner Moonlight. I'm your host, Logan Cure. You'll remember us as the monthly poetry reading for The Wild Detectives in Dallas. We are back in podcast form, and I am so excited to bring you reading and conversation with one incredible writer every episode. This month, I am joined by Robin Myrick, who is a writer and visual artist and the author of I Am This State of Emergency, the debut title from Dallas Indie Press Surveyor Books. Robin holds an MFA in writing and critical studies from California Institute of the Arts and has also studied in the Humanities Aesthetic Studies doctoral program at the University of Texas at Dallas. Her work often engages the ephemeral or mediated moment as expressed through film and television, portraiture, and the rhetoric of identity, politics, consumerism, and disaster. Robin has taught at St. Edwards University, UT Dallas, Collin College, and other fine institutions that currently makes her weekly hay in the wilds of higher education, SEO, and digital marketing. Welcome, Robin. Hello. I'm so excited you're here today. Me too. So I open every show with asking my guests to tell me something good. So Robin, will you please tell me something good? Well, you know, I think the number one something good on any given day for me is love, you know, and definitely during the pandemic, it has been that. But I'm going to nominate something else today, and that is tea, because tea is also something that has been getting me through the last year. And I, I was reminded this week, a coworker and I had this ritual when we were in the office, our, our cubicles were together, and she would throw a tea bag over the side of the partition in the afternoons if I hadn't taken a break. <laughs> and I would do the same for her, you know, and so, and it was a treat to see which type of tea bag was going to fly over the partition every day. So, yeah, so I'm still, uh, I'm still loving tea and having some delicious tea today. That is beautiful. I love it. Good. My good thing is that I have been exploring nature preserves around where I live. I just moved to Duncanville and there's like several nature preserves all within a short drive of where I am now. So I've taken my kid and my dog and we've we've done some some hiking these pretty days. Mm, that's nice. Quite a lot out here to explore in the in the southern reaches of Dallas. Yeah, it's, it's nice to find these like gems of beauty all around. Yes, any gem of beauty I can find in our lovely Dallas, I'm, I'm always happy to. <laughs> yes, yes. So speaking of gems of beauty, um, I'm super excited to talk about this book with you today. So I know you've got your elevator pitch for what I Am This State of Emergency is. So for our listeners, what is this book? To put it bluntly, I guess it's about us. It's about the, the sort of state that we've gotten ourselves into over the last decade or so of miscommunication and difficulties in communication and what we're willing to say to and about each other in the name of politics now that that infuses everything in our lives, it seems. Yes. And this is described as a listening project. So can you tell us what you mean by listening? It was actually a conceptual project that kind of grew out of a curiosity I had around the time of the 2008 election. You know, when Obama was elected, my dad, who was an older person at the time, and a lot of his friends who were kind of in that category were literally scared of what was going to happen because they were so afraid of this this person. I was surprised by that and nonplussed by that, but also I kind of I just wanted under, to understand where those feelings were coming from because that 
there seem to be a lot of people in that category, in addition to those who are just angry because their candidate lost. So it actually started by talking to him about his feelings and unwinding like where feelings like that come from. I started becoming more curious about, you know, other people that I knew in all great age groups of all persuasions and how they had sort of arrived at the political feelings that they had, especially if their positions were very hard and firm. And so I started by talking to people about those things and going to, you know, a few town hall meetings, you know, this was the era of the uh, spectacle town hall meeting where everyone was just letting it all fly. And, you know, the more I talked to people, the, the more interesting it became. But at the same time, I kind of realized that a better approach to learning about how people got where they are and what they were feeling was really just to listen instead. So I stopped being the former journalist that I am and like needling people with questions and just started listening to what they were saying, just really deeply listening to what the people around me in my orbit in my day to day, whether I knew them or not, were saying about these things, the things they were willing to say to me, to other people, kind of just about this division and and the widening of the division. And more and more through the years, uh, it's been shocking and amazing and interesting what I've heard. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you mentioned personal conversations, you mentioned town halls. What other kinds of places did you listen? When I switched over to listening, that's really when I started writing the poems and when the poems started to take shape, even well before there was the thought of this being a book. I listened in my day-to-day life. I listened on social media, at parties, at gatherings, just in the grocery store, pretty much anywhere that I was at. But my big constraint with this project, which I stuck to religiously, was that eavesdropping was not going to be part of it. Mm-hmm. The listening had to take place in conversations with me or in situations where I was present and the person speaking knew that I could hear what they were saying, whether that was the checkout line, whether that was social media being part of a conversation about politics on there, you know, in my personal life, just the day to day. Okay. Okay. And so the result of all of that listening was this is this book that is many, many voices, including yours. Yes, the poems do campaign me a little bit in a very specific way, but mostly they capture the voices of others and not necessarily just one person, one poem. There can be many different speakers and attitudes and even opposing points of conversation within the same poem. All right. So I want to hear one of these poems. I believe one of the ones you sent me was the opening poem. Will you read me that one? Yes. 19. I am the future, speaking myself into existence, believing negated into created. Swinging revelation is my velvet rope. Other is neither, does not figure. Just us, you, and them. The map is a constellation, the weather forecast a sign, the coordinates a premonition, and I am the mantle, the marker, the inevitability, interrupted by your face. Okay, so tell me about why you open on number 19. Number 19 is one of the, 
you know, it was one of the early poems that I wrote. And I also just thought it kind of represented a lot of, a lot of what the book ended up being about, which is this sort of insular position that we can all get into as far as whether we're in the right, we represent America, we're saving America, and the other side is destroying America. All, all those kinds of things that can get wrapped up and also just kind of spew forward from us in the form of language when we encounter someone that is going to challenge us on it. Okay. Do the numbers get larger as you get deeper into the book? The the numbers are not sequential. So so that doesn't go straight from one to a hundred throughout the book. They're really about sort of the time at which I wrote the poem. And sometimes they're a clue for me to the people that were represented. While 19 is not the first poem I wrote. I felt it was the right one to start the book. Although I will say 100 is the last poem I wrote. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's interesting. And there's, were there just like a flat hundred of them? Yes. Okay. Why a hundred? I don't know. It just seemed like the right number to me. And, <laughs> um, you know, as we, before this, with the thought of the book, came with the poems. You know, this was a series that ran in Entropy magazine online during the run-up to the election of 2016. So also, 100 was a way of kind of putting a frame on the wild number of poems that were actually written. (laughs) Right, right, right. And uh, a frame and a sequence to it. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I, this poem sets up the the next things that unfold. I am the future speaking myself into existence. Those lines, like you said, represent sort of the insular ways that each voice sort of sees itself, but also what this book then does with all of its concerns and questions about language, like the way that the book like speaks itself into existence. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It's so interesting that it's difficult to tell whose voice this might be. Like if I try to ask myself, who is the speaker here and sort of extrapolate what I believe about the speaker, it's very ambiguous. Yes, it is. And (laughs) that is intentional. One of the reasons that you will not see the words Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or conservative or liberal in the book is because really I'm less concerned with that than I am with the language itself. This really was an attempt to boil the whole thing down to the language we're using to describe each other, to talk to each other. I think it's kind of amazing when people read the book and they talk to me about the poems, how often they won't quite get it right or they are desperate to figure it out, you know, Hmm. Uh, one one or the other. And um, really, this is more about, hey, look at what we're doing to each other. how we're speaking to each other, you know, how we're kind of taking the humanity out of the situation of talking to each other about these things that are very important to us, but at the same time, kind of obscure the the basic nature of our relationships sometimes. Well, I think that leads us into number 76, which was my favorite of the pieces that you sent me. Will you read me number 76? Yes. 76. How good it feels to be truly free of you. I probably would have gone on trying. Being fair, defending your right to say it, attempting to understand, avoiding the hurt I could inflict, for years if this hadn't happened. 
And the best part is how obvious it now is. That you never gave me the same courtesy or care, or paused to consider what might hurt me, or held back when your hate or anger began to describe people like me, and there was a chance I might realize it and feel something about it. It wasn't always like this with us, or rather with you, but there really hasn't been much us for a while now. And realizing that is just the best, because now there's nothing truly lost in losing you, except a past we shared that was so much better. And it's not really lost. Who we were to each other remains, like the memory of a stuffed animal or a beloved pet. So vividly there, feeling so accessible and real, but without benefit of a body or a reason that's not bittersweet. What goes on is me and you, in tandem but not in touch. I hope you find the same blessing in it if you ever notice I'm gone. It's the voice in that poem for me, how good it feels. And then later, it's just the best. Ah, well, I have to say this is one, one way that I appear in the book is in some of these more kind of, you know, expressing one's hurt (laughs) Mm -hmm. about this or that. This poem was actually, you know, this poem was actually all me speaking to someone that is no longer in my life because of this situation of politics and, and what it does to our relationships. Yes. You're right. That's been a a novel sort of calculation for me too. Like when you were saying, you know, this is one person's orbit, but you know, maybe there's, there's points of connection for, for your audience. That was one of the things that I felt a connection with is like, there's so long in my life that I didn't talk about these things with the people around me. And then you're right. It, it started to come for you. Right. And it Um, always does. It always does, you know, because like this in particular was a person who, you know, I made a point not to engage with because we were so far apart on the political spectrum and the religious spectrum and every spectrum you can figure. But we had a very close connection because we grew up together, you know, and I wanted to maintain that friendship. And actually, I kind of unfriended this person on Facebook unceremoniously after a certain thing happened. I guess I'm more feeling now that, you know, that that doesn't necessarily mean that's an end of a friendship. I don't consider it the end of a friendship to not be connected on social media, although Mm -hmm. a lot of people do. If anything, it's more about preserving the feelings and the history for me, you know, and if that person called me up today and wanted to talk about politics on the on the phone, that antiquated uh, that form of communication, or in a Zoom call, I would definitely still do it, you know. Yeah. But there's only so much you can know about another person that you don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's a great point. That so you know, for for a project that is so based in listening, I'm sure you have a lot of observations about the ways different mediums affect how people communicate and especially social media, how that has changed the ways that we conceptualize relationships. Cause you're right. A lot of people would consider being unfriended on social media, like the end of a friendship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't. And, and, you know, this person who I still will always love, 
you know, she, I, she feel, I feel like she would probably say the th- same things to my face. So, you know, that's okay. You know, there are some people who are bold in their lives and really feel the need for everyone to know how they feel and where they stand. And then there are other people that have just been emboldened by our times and just, just ready to say a lot of things that have been, things are just bursting forth that maybe they never thought that they would say in any sort of public forum, you know? And for some people that clearly feels good and feels needed in some way. And of course for others, it's just like a, let's tune up, let's tune up my friends on the other side of the spectrum (laughs) and Mm -hmm. see what happens, you know? But, but no matter what the intent behind it is, when you boil it down to the level of language, some uh, good and bad things can come from that. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess social media gives people much more access to something that is public, so to speak, right? Like you mentioned, like standing in line at the grocery store, you used to have to like leave your house to, to reach public. <laughs> right. Well, and so much is, yeah. And this year, like so much of that energy or that bubbling cauldron of, of whatnot that, that um, comes out in what we say to each other has been channeled through social media. But when I was doing this project, I mean, during that certain period of time, I was just hearing like, you know, the craziest things, pumping gas and, you know, Mm -hmm. just at the sporting goods store or wherever I was at, people were just uh, going off. And even people I knew that I would never have thought, you know, it's just, I think, especially at the time that, you know, this was first happening, when I was really first starting to write these poems, it was just everywhere. And I, I guess it still is. And I guess our, our pandemic lives and the mask or no mask thing and all these other things that we're, we're fighting about or needing to talk about culturally are just sort of continuing to raise those issues and keep the conversation hot. But, um, but when this was first occurring, it was just mind-blowing to me. It's interesting because you were writing in this very particular window of time, but it gives us insight into so many things that are ongoing and that have taken on new manifestations as all kinds of novel problems have, have befallen us as a, like a culture. Right. Novel is, oh, novel is such an understatement, you know, but it is so true at the same time, you know, everything that we've has happened that uh, we never could have foreseen. And the the I think one thing that the book tries to capture too is the the sense really in the last decade of how everything old is new again in terms of language. You know, I, I structured the book like a double album. And it's funny because I think a lot of my friends have, you know, used the word playlist kind of thinking that, you know, oh, double album is so antiquated. And it is antiquated, but this is very purposeful because a, a lot of the a lot of the conversations we're having are pulling forth all this language from from every era, you know, it's really the 20th century, like coming forward and having its revenge in a way. We're hearing things, the language from World War II and the Red Scare and McCarthyism and the Jim Crow era. And everybody is suddenly going deep into their bag of insults, problematic language for sure. And just bringing it back in a way that reminds us that we're not through dealing with the past and it's much more with us than we realized. Yeah. Did you have that portion of research too, where you looked 
back at the ways that political rhetoric has shaped everyday speech? No, not really. I'll give you the the Pee-wee's big adventure response, which is I didn't have to research. I lived it, Dottie. Um, okay. That's <laughs> like fair. not war, you know, not World War II, but you know, yeah. I was, uh, I've been alive long enough to kind of see a lot of the, during the 20th century and now mm. to see how this language has evolved, where it's come back. I grew up in the deep South. There's a certain amount of challenge that goes with that in terms of, you know, issues of race and culture and religion and who belongs and who does not and who's a real American, who's not, who's a real Southerner, who's not. That's also why the whole bless your heart thing is very prevalent in the book. I think I use that phrase five times in the poems, kind of reflecting, you know, maybe a little of it is my, you know, my Southern heritage, but the idea of, you know, we can use the same language to bless you and curse you. Yes. Uh, depending on whose mouth it's coming out of and what they're responding to, you know, bless your heart, as Joe Malazzo, my publisher, will tell you, is, uh, you know, it can be a very loving response, a concerned response, or it can be a replacement for F you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so many, it's used so many different ways. And sometimes a little of both. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and I also wouldn't want people to to think that this is just like about the South or people from the South, because it absolutely is not. My friend group extends across America and the world. And so, and I did not limit it to just the people in my immediate orbit. So this isn't, yeah. people have their things about the South <laughs> yeah, and what they think about it. So I would not want anyone to get the impression that this is just a picture of that. It absolutely is not. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It doesn't read that way to me. And I guess, that is another sort of way that all of your different methods of listening affects this product, right? Because social media and other like technological ways of connecting allow your web of people to be expansive and not just like the folks in your local area. Right. And I mean, it's interesting in that respect that the the book is coming out now too, because that's really so much the case for all of us, isn't it? Yes, even people who are in our local area, we connect with, with technology. <laughs> yes, because yeah. we must, yes. And, you know, and we're all, not like, not we're all, but those of us who are working at home, like me, you know, I'm having meetings with people on the West Coast, the East Coast, you know, and down the street every day, so. Yeah. So I want to hear one of the ones that has, that for sure sounds like a lot of voices to me. So that is definitely number 88. So we read number 88 for me. Sure. 88. Let's not blame them because they're stupid. Let's blame them because they were raised that way. Shrewd, but not smart. Probably grew up in the house of an ignoramus and just never bothered to quit misunderstanding. Or they were forced to watch a certain kind of television or mating ritual or pledge allegiance to some prosperity revelation instead of everything that's more intellectually nutritious. Maybe it's just vitamins they lack. Let's not blame them because they're wrong. Let's blame them because they can't tell the difference. They don't understand who they are and are not and what is wrong and what is not. I'm sure they didn't have the proper education or they had too much, too many degrees or the wrong ones, years of sheltering in place, in the wrong place, hiding in the bed skirts, observing but not participating, never understanding they had choices and that the stink of aspiration will fade. They're products for that. 
But who am I to speak about another person's experience or beliefs or lack of either or lack? Extenuating circumstances could apply. The usual charitable assumptions should be made because if I'm guilty of anything, it's empathy. We're both people who have taught composition. And one of the things that we teach students to do is to ask themselves, who is the speaker who is being addressed? And what are they trying to tell us? Um, and this is one of those where I, where I look at this and I, and I ask myself, who is the speaker? And I'm like, so many voices. So many. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of that thing of if we can't understand the other side, you know, maybe we need to pity them because they don't know as much as we know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not going to say that I've never felt that way. It's the flip side of if we don't understand the other side, let's just go on, on ahead and hate them. You know, I do appreciate that people are trying to understand the other side that they don't agree with as well. But it can also flip into, you know, the whole thing of like, well, you know, let's try and understand someone that we're clearly superior to. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let's not blame them. Yeah. That goes both ways. So. Yeah. One of the lines that strikes me is they were forced to watch a certain kind of television. (laughs) Did you find like patterns of that in your listening that like certain TV sources were really prevalent? It's funny to me because what's really interesting is, you know, aside from social media where somebody's sharing, I'm sharing CNN or I'm sharing Fox news or I'm sharing you know, Newsmax or what have you. I haven't really found that people's, especially during the time I was writing the book, you know, the the conversation wasn't so-and-so said this, so I believe this too. It was really just all of that filtering down from, you know, from media, from politicians, from every angle it's coming from into our speech. And that's really the part I was interested in, how we take these positions on, whether they come from the Fox News anchor, whether they come from the MSNBC chat show, whatever it is, how we just take it on. We adopt it and take it on through our language and it comes out as us. So, Mm. yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't really studying that at all, just uh, seeing how it trickles down. That's interesting. Okay. Did you watch a lot of news during this time? Like, did you watch like a lot of different news? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just a a news junkie anyway. That was my, I got that gene from my mom. I'm pretty sure even from being a small girl, I've always, I've always watched a lot of news and, you know, all types, all opinions. Yeah. Cause you, you would have to really be broad with all of the intake for this project to be effective. What I say in the preamble about, you know, committing to really deeply listening and not turning off you know, or turning down the volume on things that I don't want to hear or don't agree with or, or even think are horrific. That was really, really important to me. Again, because this was not meant to be a representation of either side, just a, rem- a representation of people. Yeah, this, this reminds me of a lot of different conversations that, that unfolded during the 2016 election, just of like, for sure, things that were said on both sides of the political spectrum 
I got it from people, um, you know, believing it and sending it forward or, or mixing it with their own beliefs or however that works out. But, um, I will say, you know, that there are some things in here that, uh, were said specifically to me in reference to me (laughs) Hmm. as well, you know, and it is also reflective of things like the culture wars around education and elites and intellectualism and whether that's a good or a bad thing. You know, I've been accused of having too much education before (laughs) because of my smart mouth. Uh, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's all these different things. Yeah. There are so many different, this poem reflects so many different speakers and opinions. Yeah. Well, and you know, gosh, it's interesting because when I asked myself who is being addressed here, it's sort of me personally, but also everyone, but you're right that those critiques read differently if they're directed at somebody specific. Cause the second you said, Oh yeah, people have said that to me. I was like, Oh, that's gendered. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean, but you know, it's also, you know, like when I say, I believe it's okay to be smart. I also don't mean necessarily that, uh, you have to have a, uh, you know, you have to have a PhD to be a smart person. Also, you know, like, I think that, part of this conversation that is reflected in these poems and in this one is just the line of attack that's, you know, I'm smart, so therefore you're wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, right. you know, yeah. So that's why lines like shrewd but not smart kind of filter into this too. Yeah. Well, this poem is is interesting because it starts out in like almost a collective voice. Let's not, let's not. And I mean, about halfway through, we finally meet the I pronoun. I'm sure they didn't have the proper education. And that shift from what I first encounter as a collective voice to what I then am like, oh, this is a single speaker is really interesting. The way we use, you know, terms like I and you and we and them and us is so fascinating to me because just which of those we use to start a conversation is very interesting, you know, and what's assumed by the we or the us or the them, you know, who's, who's part of the we, who's part of the them. Uh, When you're, you know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've often had the experience in the last decade or so that I'll be talking to someone and we'll hear some, some version of the us versus them including me in the us and someone uh, that I love in the them without, without the person knowing that they're talking to someone that's actually should be in the them categories mm-hmm. in category in their eyes, you know, by people assuming what you think and telling you certain things because they assume you're alike in that way and not realizing that you're the other that they're speaking of. Right. Yeah. You know, I I think the book maybe is reflecting less of the carefulness that a lot of us have now. So the the book is probably more about the Wild West era (laughs) of all that stuff. Yeah. Well, and I think it is really interesting that the ways that will change and the ways that readers will see this book differently 
as time moves forward, like already I'm looking at this poem and the phrase sheltering in place is jumping out at me as having a totally different meaning now versus when you would have written this, you know, before the pandemic. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I, I'm, you know, it's really, I really want people to come to this book with whatever they bring to it and take from it what they will, because my ambition for the book is definitely that people take it and read it and think about it as they will. They may or may not see themselves reflected in it, or they may see their relationships there. But really, you know, the the main thing I, w- I would love if people would do is just think about it. You know, if just use this a book, use this book as you will, if it soothes you to understand that other people are having the same difficulties and conversations and not always handling them well, you know, that's great. If it makes you think about where this could be you, where this might be you, how you're behaving if if you have lost relationships and you want to get them back, great. And if it's just a snapshot of our time and of a certain orbit, that's great too. Not really trying to change anybody's political opinions, more to more to start a conversation about what this is. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me sort of of like how like blackout or erasure poetry works, taking existing text and showing the reader something specific about it that's already there. Yeah. But the well, text is like so massive because it's like all of the text of your listening. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. I mean, and there's some, there's a little bit of an element of that in the book too. You know, I have poems that I have fill in the blank poems, you know, okay. it's like the, it's like the most awful version of Mad Libs almost, Okay, <laughs> you know, where I give the reader, you know, things like I want, I need, I hate, like, and there's an answer key at the end of the poem. Um, and it's a, you know, choose your own order sort of thing that kind of reflects we're leaning toward or against, depending on who we are in the whole culture wars conversation. There's also room for the reader to make their own adventure a little bit too. Yeah. Okay. And so this is the debut title from Surveyor Books, yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was just reading about about Joe and Surveyor Books the other day. Um, it sounds like a fascinating project to be a part of. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. I'm very excited the Dallas Morning News gave Surveyor a little bit of love. You know, Joe is a, a literary lion in our scene and a supporter of Dallas writers. And he is a Dallas writer. Yeah. Joe is fantastic. And I'm really excited to be part of Surveyor. And also, you know, there are things coming up that I can't talk about yet, but some other exciting writers coming into the Surveyor stable as well. That's so exciting. Okay. I love secret news. Even just knowing (laughs) their secret news is very thrilling for me. (laughs) Well, what is next for you? There are some things I'm working on finishing. One is a novel about product tampering. (laughs) That's actually funny. Okay. Yeah. Comedy about product tampering. Okay. Yeah. Comedy about product tampering. Also, I'm working on finishing a um, a another kind of long project that's about the rhetoric of cookbooks and lifestyle guides at mid-century and also about infomercials and the whole do-it-yourself craze. Nice. Okay. 
And that's fascinating. You know, things like uh, Pillsbury Bake Off cookbooks. Oh, I love those because, you know, one of the poems in this um, series is, is called Prize Winners. And it's basically taken from the 1952 version of that book, where every woman in it is identified only by her last name, Mrs. So-and-so. And there's a little commentary on uh, her recipe and um, what it will do for you, how it will make you happy and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Mrs. Smith's lemon parfait is served neatly. You know, I mean, just like all kinds of weird stuff like that. Very sensory. Yeah. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Most of it, it's like, it's interesting because the way they, you know, it's like, it's like a lot of the descriptions of the food are actually in some way um, meant to be a, a description of the cook. Um, okay. And their abilities or their goodness. You'll want to serve Mrs. Jones's cream pie often with a okay. delicate sauce on the side, you know? Okay. And, yeah. And so it has been described as like one of my dirtiest poems. And yet there is nothing dirty in it. It's really just, I, I think it connects with maybe the whole way that we fetishize food and women in our society, or we were in 1952. So. Yeah. Okay. That's amazing. I can't, I can't wait for that. <laughs> Yeah, but those are the two those are the two things I'm working on finishing right now. Well, I am so excited for the stuff you have forthcoming. I can't wait to to hear more about the bake off winner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have send, I will I will make the rare exception and I will send you that poem, Logan, so you can see it. I would love that. Thank you. Well, thank you too for being here today. Um, this was such a lovely conversation. I really appreciate you. Thank you. This was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to the Wild Detectives. This has been Inner Moonlight. I am your host, Logan Cure. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month.